I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Well-designed randomized clinical trials may provide information about prevention strategies and effective treatments for women at risk of or diagnosed with breast cancer. A major limitation of clinical trials, however, is that results apply to the trial group as a whole, but not necessarily to each individual woman. That's because individual responses are influenced by the patient's and the tumor's unique DNA or genetic profile. So how might researchers precisely identify risks for individual women based on protein and gene biomarkers to predict outcomes for breast cancer treatment or even prevention? Dr. Jack Cusick is a director of the Wolfson Institute of Preventative Medicine in London. He's also head of the Center for Cancer Prevention and John Snow Professor of Epidemiology at Queen Mary University of London. In 2007, he was chosen by Thomson Scientific as one of the 12 hottest researchers in all of science. He was awarded the AACR Cancer Prevention Prize in 2012, and he's been a BCRF investigator since 2011. As one cancer research site puts his impact best, Professor Cusick's work on breast cancer treatment and prevention has been instrumental in reducing the number of women losing their lives to the disease. Before my conversation with Dr. Cusick, though, one last item, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thanks for considering. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jack Cusick. Dr. Cusick, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So I know this conversation is about breast cancer research, but I confess, as I did my own research, I started to find myself even more curious about your apparent mastery of time management. You're the author of 520 peer review papers across all major journals. Um, how in the world does anyone have uh, the time to create uh, uh, or generate that many uh, of anything? Uh, much less 520 is probably more by now, uh, peer-reviewed papers. Yeah, I think it's 680 right now. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, that explains it because my data was from last week, so I guess that's the gap. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, you know my work is collaborative, uh, and I work with lots of different people. So uh, by no means have I written all of the words in all of those papers. Um, okay. And. So that, in epidemiology, one is a, it's a very much a collaborative subject. So I have lots of collaborators around the world. Okay, right, so so that's that's the, the burden. Th that's the burden of being able to get along with other people. Absolutely. Okay. Um, you, you also you made quite a statement transitioning uh, from extraordinary uh, output and time management towards uh, uh, breast cancer. You, you made quite a statement um, back in 2014, and then we'll kind of fast forward to uh, what you're working on now. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you've made other extraordinary statements since then, but uh, this is one that I read. Uh, it was back at the uh, San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium when you said breast cancer is the epidemic of our century. What do you mean by that? Well, I think you only have to look at the incidence rates around the world, and you can see that most cancers are either going down or fairly stable. But particularly in the developing world, breast cancer continues to roar up at a terribly high rate. 
not so high in the United States. It's fairly stable there, probably because of, of uh, the fact that the, the rates are already pretty high. But um, what's happening really worldwide is everything we know about breast cancer in terms of risk factors is going in the wrong direction. Obesity is a risk factor. Late age at first childbirth is a risk factor. Use of hormone therapy is a risk factor. All of these things worldwide are increasing. Um, and um, that's you know, very much the explanation. So, so let's talk about risk factors because uh, obviously one of your main areas of focus is to improve risk assessment in high-risk women um, by identifying protein and gene biomarkers. That's uh, among the current work is my understanding that you're working on. If I have any of that wrong, obviously you'll uh, uh, correct me in a highly polite and collaborative way, I'm, I'm sure. Um, yeah, help me understand uh, two parts of that and, and of your work. Uh, one, what defines high-risk women? You just talked about some of those factors, but you, you know, how do you determine that in terms of you know, your own definition? And then how do you evaluate risk within this group? Are the measurements more sensitive, say, for them because of their family histories or, or the other factors? So help me. Let, let's dig in a little bit really on that, on that term risk. Yes, you've chosen an active, very active and fluid uh, area at the moment. Uh, we started out uh, in our first prevention trial, IBIS-1, uh, we had specific risk factors that would qualify you to be high enough risk to be considered for preventive therapy. And then because we couldn't fit everyone in, we had a final category, which was uh, at high risk as judged by the PI of the study. And that was me. And to help me, I created a program which allowed you to combine risk factors in ways that allow you to assess risk. And basically, high risk was considered to be twice the population risk at that time. Now, since then, that program has achieved a much wider use and um, is used not only for high-risk women, but uh, for a lower for, or slightly above average risk. It is the basis for most insurance companies in the United States determining who's eligible for MRI screening. Uh, I'm, I was at a meeting last week and told that this is a currently a $3 billion business, and it's very much determined about whether you get it is, is the use of, of, our, of our risk program. Uh, that's, that's fantastic, uh, obviously. And, and so I, it, it would seem, if I'm interpreting this right, the extension of that definition, um, I assume, is very helpful because it, that's getting more women into the, the prevention or at least the, the ability to, to determine their status um, sure. And I would assume then, you know, p pick up things uh, sooner. So, um, uh, you know, quite, you know, quite an important uh, uh, contribution. W what about the role? Talk to me then about um, the biomarkers. As you, you know, I, I, I saw the term um, biological signposts. So if you could just take me through how do you, how does that process work? Um, and, and in layman's terms, you know, what are protein and gene biomarkers? Yes, the, the program started out originally as just a questionnaire-based program in which we looked at things like family history, prior benign disease, weight, use of hormone replacement therapy, uh, whether you'd had children or not, uh, and produced a risk profile. We've now expanded that in, in the current version, which is version 8, which shows you how, how much change there's been, uh, to include 
not only uh, questionnaire data, but also mammographic density, which is a very important factor. Many people only are aware of the fact that mammograms are used to detect cancer early, but in fact, they turn out to be very, very useful for determining who's at high risk. White areas on mammogram, which is dense tissue, which is not fatty, but it's actually uh, epithelial tissue or fibroglandular tissue, having more of that increases your risk of breast cancer. That's an important additional factor. And then the third area, which you referred to, is to begin to look at uh, genetic factors. And in fact, um, although there are a couple of well-known genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2, that give a very high risk of, of breast cancer, they are very rare. Less than half a percent of the population has them. So in terms of assessing risk in a population, they aren't that useful. And they're really only useful when there's a strong family history. Now, it turns out that there are a number of other genes that individually have very small risks, like they may increase or decrease your risk by 5 or 10%. So ind individually, they're not very important. But there are now 147 of them. And if you do a profile and look for all of these, you begin to find patterns where some women may have 10 or 15 of these increased. Some may have that many decreased. So it begins to add another layer of risk stratification, not only these very small high-risk genes or very rare high-risk genes with bigger risks, but a whole panel of a large number of genes which individually carry small risk, but overall can tell us a lot more who's at increased risk of breast cancer. So in our most recent uh, analyses of these data, we found that the three factors, that is questionnaire data, breast density, and these so-called single nucleotide polymorphisms or genetic factors, each are quite independent of each other and about the same strength. So they all contribute about one-third to our risk predictions now. You know, as I have these uh, conversations, and I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to get to talk with, you know, leading researchers and scientists such as yourself, a number of things really stand out. One of them is what you just mentioned, um, the coming together of different strands of research. So I can imagine that once upon a time, and you kind of just went through this a little bit, once upon a time, we, you looked maybe primarily or solely at the questionnaire data. And then you layer on other findings and you find connections to the, the mammography and the breast and the density and, and so, you know, out of that. And, and you, you layer that in. And then we start to learn about, uh, the genetic factors. And, you know, one in particular may have only a five or 10%, um, you know, increase of risk as, as you're stating. But as you start to understand the interplay among them and then the interplay among all those factors. And, and is that a, is the openness to those types of connections, is that a key part of scientific research from your point of view, or is it going down deep in one particular area and contributing that to the scientific findings? Well, I think our, our research is very much focused on the kind of the big picture thing. So um, we, you know, my, one of my key areas is determining who's at high enough risk to, to warrant preventive therapy. And in the UK, uh, there's a committee called NICE of the National Institute for Clinical Excellence has said that if your 10-year risk is 8% or higher, your doctor should talk to you about preventive therapy. That's about a three-fold risk. If it's between 5 and 8%, two- to three-fold risk, they should discuss it with you but recognize that there are risks and benefits and it may be 
more of an individual decision. So that's one place where some of this has come from, and it indicates the sort of wide need. By putting in all of these different factors, both questionnaire data, density data, and the genetic factors, we're able to separate the population into high, more into the higher risk and more into the lower risk. And as a result of the, this, there's become an increased interest in the fact that uh, maybe we should be thinking about what's called provision, uh, uh, precision stratified screening, in which uh, a woman gets a chance to have her risk assessed and determine how much screening she really needs. Some women are going to be at low risk. If your risk of breast cancer is, say, less than 1% in 10, in 10 years, you probably don't need regular screening, and how much you need is, is an open question, but it could probably be every five years. If your risk is up in that 5 to 8% or higher, you probably need more screening, and you should be screened more regularly than in the UK. Annual or biannual certainly makes sense. If you have dense breasts, we know that mammography has limited sensitivity there, so that density area not only tells you that you're an increased risk, but we should be looking for new and better ways to actually screen women because once there's this white density on the breast, you can't see the cancer so easily. There are new methods that can actually see through that. Tell me, if you would, about the biobank um, and the clinical trials that you're running there. Yes, we've been very, uh, felt very strongly that in our prevention trials of women known to be at high risk, we should not only be trying to, to lower their risk with preventive drugs, but to understand more about why they're at high risk and which preventive treatments might work best. So altogether, there have been probably 15,000 women in our IBIS-1 and IBIS-2 trials and the precursor Royal Marsden trial uh, in which we've collected a baseline blood sample. Uh, we collect, if they get breast cancer, we try to get the, the tumor blocks from that breast cancer, which can be a lot of work sometimes. Um, and with those blood samples and with the tumor blocks, we're actually now making good progress in determining different types of breast cancer. And the goal is to determine which kinds of breast cancer will respond to different kinds of preventive treatment. And if we were to look back, um, you know, and, and the extraordinary accomplishments that you've already made um, to this field, and, and you've been doing it, uh, you know, for, for a number of years, I know. Um, you were the first, I believe, to report the effect of tamoxifen on uh, contralateral tumors as an indicator of its um, potential of a chemo-preventative role. Um, how instrumental, I mean, as, as you look back and, and you know, that you're finding, um, that's really made an incredible impact as I was reading about it um, ever since then. Um, t t tell me about that original, uh, you know, finding and, you know, the effects of, uh, you know, what you have, what you found vis-a-vis -vis tamoxifen. Well, thank you for, 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 for reminding me of that. Um, <laughs> I started my work in breast cancer as um, a statistician analyzing the adjuvant trials in hormone therapy. And I worked with Mike Baum at that stage. And uh, being the statistician and being interested in the biology, I had a, you know, really good access. I had all of the data plus access to some of the great experts in the area. And um, one of the observations that came out of one of the early trials, which we published in 1985, was that not only was tamoxifen reducing recurrence, 
that is in the breast or systemic recurrence, but new tumors in the opposite breast were also reduced. So we reported that in one trial uh, in 1985 that's since been confirmed in many trials and also been confirmed to be useful for the aromatase inhibitors. So it's one, one nice example of, of uh, sort of repurposing of drugs, if you like. And breast cancer is unique in that uh, women have two breasts. They tend to only get cancer in one of them at a time. And the treatments you get, give to actually try to reduce recurrence of, of that cancer can also be monitored for the effects on new cancers in the opposite breast. So it's been a unique and extremely valuable way of identifying agents that are going to be good for prevention. And in terms of the getting here, um, you know, given your work credentials and given the fact that uh, we're talking right now and, and you're in London, I, I confess I was fully, fully expecting to hear a British accent. Um, and, and then I saw that, that you're a California kid. So um, take yeah. me back. What, what happened? You, you, you couldn't take the California weather and just well, had like to head to London? Well, there's various sort of phrases about that. I like to say that uh, – that 20 years of sunshine is enough to last you for a lifetime. So <laughs> I've spent my first 20 years, I grew up on the beach in Southern California as a surfer. Mm. I'm really a misplaced California beach bum. That uh, uh, I was ready to do something else. And I must say, I lived, I then moved to New York and spent about four or five years at Columbia uh, and then onward east uh, to, to London. And I really enjoyed sort of the the European mentality is one I find really very, very striking. I love New York as well, but the children came along, and I think we found it very difficult to raise children in Manhattan. Yes, they, they certainly can get in the way of uh, all sorts of plans, can't they, those, uh, you know, those <laughs> darn kids? So anyway, uh, I love going back to New York, but uh, London is my home now. Yeah, and and would you talk about the European sensibility or mentality? Just Is that a, a, a medical and a research point of view? Do you mean it from there or just kind of lifestyle and, and that sort of I thing? I mean lifestyle and culture. I think that uh, in my view I find, well New York's an exception because I always like to say that New York City has nothing to do with America. It's a whole other country in terms of culture um, mixing both American and European culture. But I do like the sort of uh, interest in a broader range of things. Uh, um, I just I do like the fact that um, within an hour's airplane flight, you can be in a completely different culture. Uh, we have the European Union, uh, but it's still a range of different countries. There isn't quite that spectrum of, of variability across the United States. So I've enjoyed that enormously. Understood. And and the science and medicine and research, I mean, you, you said that you started out, uh, I guess, as a statistician, but, um, you know, you've, you've obviously spent a, a career in that and, and related fields. Um, you know, going from uh, self-described beach bum to scientific research, that, that Venn diagram, you know, maybe it's bigger than uh, the overlap is bigger than I would assume, not having, you know, looked at the data. Um, but w was it always for you science and re growing up, you know, science and, and research? Or um, at some point, did you have thoughts of, you know, writing poetry or anything like that? I guess I was a, I was very good at mathematics from about age two. So my career path was one I didn't have to spend too much time thinking about. I loved theoretical physics and thought originally when I went to college that I would end up being a theoretical physicist. But in fact, uh, I 
uh, you know, within, in my college years, I found the excitement of mathematics and the ability that this is a language you can use for a whole range of different areas, something that really attracted me. So I kind of shifted from physics, which is a beautiful field, to more mathematical things where it's a language which allows you to reason in any kind of scientific area that's of interest and even poetry. <laughs> yeah. And it certainly allows you, uh, it's a language that gets spoken uh, across, uh, across all borders as well. Um, and, and as you, you talk about your, uh, research, um, obviously the, you know, any type of research, uh, benefits from and requires, I would think, the support from, you know, a range of areas. And you have a, you know, you've had through your career um, just a, a number of outstanding and incredible and I'm sure highly influential um, relationships and institutions that have uh, um, supported your work. Uh, the role that BCRF has played in your research and is playing in your, your current research, um, describe that for me. Well, the BCRF has been really important in terms of being able to get the most out of our prevention trials. Um, they provided support for us to go and collect the biopsies, to collect the blood specimens, uh, to collect the mammograms where possible. So we've been able to do scientific research, uh, you know, next to the prevention trials. And it's been really very important. Uh, we, we were the first to actually look at these genetic factors, these SNPs in large research trials and identify that they even in women at high risk because of a family history or other factors, that these things actually do modify that risk, some pushing some even higher and pushing some down a little bit lower. And that's only really been possible because we've had the support of BCRF to go out and collect this material. And, and breast cancer, to be clear, is not the only area that you um, have done work on and, and focus on. Uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, you've, you know, there's prostate cancer, cervical, um, bowel cancers. Um, it's also struck me as I've, uh, had the privilege of talking with folks like you, um, the connections and the learning that goes on in one area, um, of, of cancer research and how that, you know, maybe hypotheses or, or, you know, findings or hunches then get applied to other areas. Um, is that true? Have you found that true in your work as well, I assume? I think it is. Yeah, there are certain common things that one can carry across. So, for example, much of my work in cervix and colorectal and to some extent prostate has been in screening. And um, I've also been involved with breast screening. And one of the principles that, that became most apparent initially really in cervix is that rather than using a mediocre test like pap smears or cytology annually, you're better off using a really good test like testing for the human papillomavirus, which is the cause of cervix cancer, infrequently. You can test half as often and get twice the benefit in terms of disease. So that's been something that I've carried over to other areas that, you know, screening is something you should do as infrequently as possible with the best possible test. HPV has been something I've been very heavily involved with in cervix cancer. We did the first big uh, endoscopy trial in colorectal cancer. And again, rather than just looking for blood in the stool with classic either FOBT or FIT test, um, an endoscopic uh, screen that actually looks and removes not only the cancers, but the precursor polyps uh, is much better in terms of getting a, a substantial overall benefit 
and only needing to be done probably once every 10 years. Um, I think that that challenge is now coming into breast cancer. Can we improve on mammography and begin to identify, for example, I mean, one of the areas of interest is the MRI screens tend to be picking up three times, two to three times as many lesions as mammography. Now, can you do that less frequently with some new methodology that's not so expensive um, and still get more benefit than classical mammography? So that's been kind of a theme of mine is to try to do better tests less frequently. Dr. Cusack, what other areas uh, are you most interested in? Well, I think my interests really very much focus around cancer prevention. And recently, we've been excited by uh, a new area. Everybody knows the single most important thing to do to avoid getting cancer, and it's to not smoke cigarettes or avoid tobacco use. Yeah. But if you ask people what's the second most important thing you can do, uh, they rarely give you what I think is the correct answer. I mean, there are things like obesity, physical activity. These are all important. But in fact, what is emerging is the second most important thing is to take a low-dose aspirin for about 10 years between the ages of 50 and 70. And um, the reason it's taken so long to find that is not much happens for the first three years or so. But after that, you get very striking more you know, uh, benefits, particularly for the three uh, gastrointestinal cancers, about a one-third reduction in bowel cancer, one-third reduction in stomach cancer, one-third reduction in esophageal cancer, plus smaller but important reductions in breast, prostate, and lung, because these are very common cancers. You put that all together, it emerges that uh, taking a low-dose aspirin can reduce your cancer risk of, of mortality by more than 10%. And that's second only to, to, to tobacco in terms of its, of its impact. That's extraordinary. So is that a baby aspirin or that's maybe it's a low-dose adult aspirin? No, it's, it's, it's the baby aspirin, mm. which is the, the dose is different in different countries. It's, um, what, 81 in the United States, 75 in the U.K., and 100 in Europe because it's a quarter, uh, in, it's a quarter of, of a standard aspirin. Standard aspirin is 325 in the States but 300 in the U.K. So, um, yeah. It's, it's the baby aspirin used initially. In, uh, and what happened was that um, lots of trials were done to evaluate its impact on cardiovascular disease, and they showed pretty clear benefits there. But uh, most of those trials, the follow-up was stopped within five years. Uh, Peter Rothwell and colleagues in Oxford have gone back and looked at the 20-year follow-up, and to everyone's surprise, there was this huge benefit on these major cancers that really shows up after about three years um, and has really led to my great excitement about really making this much more commonly available and used. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for your time. And, um, uh, of course, thank you for uh, the work that you have done and continue to do. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. That was my conversation with Dr. Jack Cusick. My thanks to Dr. Cusick for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.